Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'll be with you for the next 25 minutes or so as we chat about a topic that is very timely for Mara Poling, and that is remaining disciplined. What we mean by remaining disciplined is remaining disciplined certainly throughout the entirety of your investment cycle, acquisition, operations, and uh, disposition of an asset, but in particular during the acquisition phase. We are actively acquiring a number of assets right now. You may notice a little difference in the audio quality today. It's because I'm speaking to you from the road. Uh, Bill and I have been out investigating a number of different potential acquisitions, uh, as well as some that we are uh, that we are currently contracting on. And uh, this seemed like a timely uh, topic to share with everyone uh, because we're dealing with it right now. And uh, thought that those of you that are investing on your own uh, certainly might benefit from some of these thoughts. And those of you that are looking for an investment partner, a firm like Mara Poling that you can work with, uh, it's helpful to understand how uh, a sponsor, uh, how an asset manager manages their acquisition process and remains disciplined so that the assets that are acquired fit the target objectives. So that's what we're going to chat about today. Uh, we're going to talk about it in a couple different pieces. We're going to talk about um, where it can go wrong, right? One of the one of the pieces of the puzzle that might go sideways if you don't remain disciplined. Um, what that means, right? What happens when those things go uh, sideways and then how you avoid it, or at least how we avoid it. As always, if you have questions about today's topic, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at Mara Poling, that's M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And don't forget to stop by marapoling.com, visit the Learning Center, lots of great material there. We are making some improvements to the website. We've been so focused on uh, some great acquisition opportunities that the website improvement program has moved along a little more modestly than uh, we originally shared with you all. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, we will have uh, the new website, uh, new and improved, marapolling.com, up and running fairly soon. In the meantime, there's still lots of great topics uh, and content for you at the Learning Center. Again. M-A-R-A-T-O-L-I-N-G.com. All right, so where, where can it go sideways on you? What are the things that can go wrong if you aren't remaining disciplined? So the, the first one that comes to everyone's mind, right, would be the purchase price, right? It is by far the single biggest lever in the acquisition process. When you're working on an underwrite and modeling the performance of an asset, looking at how it's going to perform over the next three years, five years, 10 years, whatever the time frame might be, purchase price is going to have the biggest impact on how that asset performs financially in terms of what the terms look like uh, and the rest. So uh, that's absolutely a number you want to get right. You've heard us talk before about having a not to exceed number that we use when we're in negotiations. We absolutely have a not to exceed number and it comes from our underwriting model. 
that's one of the tools we use to help us when we keep an eye on uh, purchase price. That's certainly one of the areas that you'd want to pay attention to and that we certainly pay attention to. Another is rent growth. So we're talking about two pieces of rent growth here, the organic year-over-year -year rent growth that simply occurs in the marketplace because of inflation and the general shortage of units in that market. We underwrite typically around 3% rent growth. The markets we're in generally are running maybe 4 to 5% annual rent movement. So we're underestimating, as we typically do. Again, our underwrites are on the conservative side of that midpoint very intentionally. That's one of the ways we achieve our security and stability objectives is by being conservative in our underwriting estimates. And in doing so, we reduce the downside risk, which by the way, when you reduce the downside from a 50-50 proposition to a 20-80, so you've maybe only got a 20% downside risk, because it has to add up to 100, you've increased the likelihood of a favorable event, and a positive event, from 50% up to 80%. Um, so not just a good thing to do from a conservative, uh, let's be secure and stable and thoughtful about our investing. It's also a really good thing in terms of long-term returns because you do position yourself for the occasional favorable event, and that becomes more likely. So that's one portion of rent growth. The other is the rent growth that we're going to see because of the value-add improvements we're making. And this comes back to understanding the market, the competitive environment, being able to actually calculate what the rent differential is, and then again, estimating that correctly in terms of how we would work in the model. The next would be capital investment. So purchase price obviously drives a significant amount of the capital investment. Right. Um, and what kind of lending strategy uh, are you going with a high leverage uh, strategy, uh, 75, 80 percent of total costs? Or are you doing something more modest, which is the end of the pool we play in, where you're in the 70 to 75 percent of purchase price, but then you're funding everything else, including uh, the physical capital improvements, the value add work? Uh, you're funding that with cash. So maybe you're in the 60s in terms of an effective uh, loan to value. So that's one piece where capital investment plays a role in this and where you could get it wrong. Uh, but the other is simply the amount of capital you forecast that you're going to need. If you're looking at a value add improvement, um, say we're looking at an asset and we think we're gonna spend $5,000 a unit on a series of improvements that'll allow us to move the rents 10%. Well, if that 5,000 is a number we got to by simply saying, well, I think it's gonna cost $5,000, then we've probably set ourselves up for failure. Uh, you wanna have the, those numbers come from some real places because if we're off, if 5,000 is 5,000, if it's 7,000, while that might not sound terribly different, right? Gee, it's only $2,000. Well, it's $2,000 on 100 or 200 or 300 units. You're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that absolutely will affect your uh, return 
as well as take capital that you need to do other things, whether it's on this asset or other assets in your portfolio. The final piece, and this is one that we see um, we, we see a lot of issues with when people share deals with us. And by the way, you're free, feel free to do that if you have a um, an investment you're looking at. Maybe you're looking at buying a, a fourplex or something, uh, or maybe you're you're looking at purchasing a, a larger commercial property, maybe a 40-unit property or something, and you've got an underwrite you've put together. Uh, we're happy to help you uh, walk through it and share with you how we evaluate um, assets. So feel free to do that. Again, Pat at marapolling.com. But one of the ones we see a lot of um, challenges with is the forecasting of the cap rate at exit. So if it's a uh, environment where the market cap today is 6%, and there's still markets like that out there, not many, but there are. So let's say it's a 6% cap rate market, and the asset is being purchased at about a six cap, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, but basically at that cap rate. So you're buying it at effectively the market price. You wouldn't want to forecast an exit cap of five and a half percent or five percent. That would actually increase your return on the asset based on an assumption that cap rates are going to go down. Cap rates certainly could go down, right? There's nothing in the laws of physics that say they can't. It's uh, it's a very unlikely event that five years from now, when it's time to exit an asset, uh, cap rates are going to be lower than they are today. We forecast in the opposite direction. We'll forecast a unfavorable cap rate movement of that six percent moving to six and three quarters or seven or seven and a quarter or even seven and a half we don't know what the cap rate's going to be either five years from now we simply forecast that it's going to move negatively in other words a negative impact to us so it will move up keep that in mind that increasing cap rates lower prices decreasing cap rates raise prices so purchase price rent growth capital investment exit caps, those are places where you can get it wrong and you'll end up with some challenges. So what are the challenges you end up with if you get some of those wrong? If you don't remain disciplined in terms of how you're doing your underwriting and what you're gonna pay for an asset. So there's really two things that, that happen. One is that you will find a quality asset. It's going to perform well. It has a uh, a reasonable break-even occupancy and debt cover, so it's it's not over-leveraged. Uh, it's going to have a reasonable amount of growth expectation associated with it. You could get all of those things right and simply overpay for it. If you overpay for a quality asset, you will have a lower return. But you're not taking on any incrementally larger risk because you haven't over levered the asset or exaggerated the rent growth or uh, significantly altered the performance of the asset by virtue of an unrealistic exit cap. You've simply paid too much for it. And you know what, if you pay too much for an asset, that's something you'd certainly like to avoid. 
but you know, the only impact you're going to have from that is you're simply going to have a lower return. Nobody wants to have a lower return than they could have, right? We all like to optimize returns. But this would be a financial impact. If you get the other items wrong, right? So if you forecast rent growth that's unrealistic, if you forecast a capital investment number that's too low, if you are relying on a artificially low exit cap in order to make your asset perform, now you not only pay too much for it, right? Because your purchase price for that quality of an asset's gonna be too high. But now you've got a bad asset. You've got a poor performing asset in your portfolio. And we do look at portfolios. When you're looking at even an individual syndication, an individual investment, I know of no asset manager that has just one asset. So if you're looking to invest with someone, for example, like Mara Poling, and you're gonna invest in an individual syndication with us, an individual asset, we still manage a portfolio. And if we purchase an asset that's underperforming somewhere, that's a poor quality asset, that distraction of saving and salvaging and working hard on that asset to save as much of it as you can takes time and energy away from other quality assets. So if you just overpay for a quality asset, that's a financial impact. If what happens is you overpay for a poor asset because you've made errors in these other arenas, now you not only have a financial impact, but you have an operational impact to your entire portfolio. So here's how we avoid all that. And I say here, I should say probably, here's how we believe we avoid that. This is our strategy for avoiding it. No guarantee that everyone avoids this or that we avoid it, right? Um, it it's a pitfall that can befall anyone. Um, but the more experience you have and the more rigorous you are in your discipline, then the lower the risk that you, in fact, will make one of these errors. So there's a couple things we do. One is just our basic conservative underwriting. As we've talked before, when we forecast rent growth, we're going to forecast a lower number than what the market says we can achieve. If the market shows a $150 rent differential, we're going to underwrite $120 or $110 or maybe $100 in rent growth. If the uh, data that we have says that we can do this capital investment for $5,000, that that'll do the improvements, we're going to budget $5,500 or 5750 something in that uh, range. Uh, we're going to uh, forecast those exit caps, as I said. We're going to forecast an exit cap that moves unfavorably, that increases. Uh, so that we don't fall into the trap of believing we've purchased a quality asset when in fact maybe we've uh, got a challenging asset. So that's one way you can remain disciplined and address these issues. But what I just said also comes from knowing what the market looks like, right? You can't be conservative in terms of rent growth relative to the market if you don't know what the market is. So how do we know what the market is, as an example, or the capital investment amount, or the exit caps? And it's from data, 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 data. These are not emotional decisions. 
you simply cannot invest in an asset because it's a really good asset. I really want this one. It would be a great addition to the portfolio. Those things are immaterial. What's material is what does the data say about the competitive environment? What do the class Bs in this marketplace look like that have classic units? What's the performance of the class B assets that have improved units? What's the lower end of class A and the rents in that environment and the amenities that they have? What's the higher end of class C? What's going on in terms of development or regulations or submarket growth and a host of other factors that are going to tell you something about this potential investment? And there's data that supports all of that. Now, none of that's going to give you a absolute black and white, this is the right thing to do. It's simply going to continue to support a direction in which you're moving. So it's got to be, there's got to be data that, uh, that supports it. Uh, when we work on our acquisitions, and as I said, I'm on the road this week along with Bill, and uh, we are actively pursuing a number of different properties right now. When we'll sit and review an acquisition, and one of us makes an assertion, right? Maybe the assertion we're making is about rent growth or about what capital should be. It's the other's job to say, prove it. Show me why I should believe that. I don't believe you. Even though I might actually believe Bill or Bill might believe me. Um, there must be a challenge system. Um, capital investment, for example. Uh, we might have a budget, as I said, maybe it's $5,000 a unit for the improvements. Great, prove it to me. Well, I think we can get this for this much and this for this much. Okay, that's not proof. That's, that's, that's conjecture. That's supposition. How much have we paid for that in the past? Um, do we have quotes from one or two or three vendors or contractors? whatever it might happen to be for the services or supplies or materials that we'd be uh, installing in this upgrade. Where's the data? Pro prove it to me that that's the case. And if we can't prove it, then that's an area we need to firm up before we make those, those final offers and decide about moving forward. Obviously what I just described implies that there's more than one person doing this. And that's absolutely an important part of how Maura Poling, about how we do this work. Uh, Bill spends the uh, majority of his time leading our acquisition and uh, uh, property teams. In doing so, Bill's gonna be much more intimately uh, involved and understand these acquisitions, which puts me in a great position to play the opposite side of the fence. Uh, conversely, I may uh, see an acquisition that financially looks like it will perform well and Bill's going to take the uh, opposing side in challenging some of the assumptions maybe that are in the financial modeling. It has to be a multi-person decision. I don't decide what we do. Bill doesn't decide what we do. When you're... Uh, working with sponsors, asking them what's their decision-making process, how, how do they come to a decision, and 
that's it's important that there are multiple individuals involved and our, on our team there's an entire team of folks at the end of the day it does come down to bill and i making that final decision but there's inputs from about a half a dozen teams inside the organization from property to tax to uh, debt uh, the construction teams operations a host of folks that will weigh in with their opinions concerns thoughts worries whatever it might happen to be so that all of that gets into the mix so we absolutely work from a data position we challenge each other to prove what we are offering to prove the point of view that we're uh, supporting those decisions ultimately have to get made by the team and then the final piece of how we remain disciplined about how we um, do all that we can to not overpay for a bad asset is uh, we'll look at everything from a worst case scenario. So when we're, when we're all done and we have everything put together and we've got our not to exceed number and we've got our target purchase price number and we have an underwrite that we believe is perfected, the final question we then ask the team is, so what's the worst that could happen? And we want to play out those scenarios. What are the things that could go wrong? And if they go wrong, what does that mean? So that we can assess the risk associated with being incorrect in our decision. And as I said, on one end of the spectrum, you have an error in the underwriting and acquisition process that results in you paying too much for a quality asset. That would leave you with a financial impact. At the other end of the spectrum, you pay too much for a poor performing, for a poor quality asset. Not only do you have a financial impact on that asset, but you have an enormous amount of energy that now must be spent attempting to improve that asset so that it will perform as well as you can get it to perform. And there's a cost in mental energy focusing on that asset that actually impacts the other assets. So we wanna do all we can to reduce those risks so that the only risk we're looking at is a potential financial risk that maybe we paid too much for something. And again, our underwriting, we believe, protects us from that. But again, we're only getting to maybe an 80-20, right? There's still a possibility out there that that 20% could come home to roost. So there's nothing foolproof about any of this. We've been doing this work, uh, Bill and I, for quite a long time, uh, as has uh, uh, many of the members on our team, uh, grizzled veterans, uh, if you will. And that's very valuable in terms of us being able to make quality decisions. Knock on wood, to date, we're very satisfied with the properties we've added to our portfolio over the years. Uh, and those that have gone full cycle uh, demonstrate that. Uh, our confidence in those assets was well-founded. And the only reason that that's the case is because we remain disciplined about how we underwrite, about our acquisition standards, about the methodology we use, about our focus on data and proof and high degrees of confidence in the assumptions that we put into our models. And then ultimately, 
relying on the model to guide us in terms of what we will financially offer for an asset so that we don't overpay and that if we have any risk at all it's not about the risk of a poor performing assets it's it's purely a risk of a less than optimal performance so i hope this has been of some value for those of you that are individual uh investors that are putting your own portfolio together of single families or duplexes or whatever it might happen to be i'd encourage you to give some thought to this and i'd be happy again to chat with you about that if you're in the market for an investment in multifamily if you're trying to get educated so you can be a better investor and make better decisions yourself about where you put your hard-earned dollars uh, I strongly encourage you to stop by the Learning Center. There's some great material there. I am more than happy to hop on the phone and answer questions you'd have to help you understand the multifamily space better. We may or may not be the right fit for what you're looking for. Um, the way to know that is to learn more about Mara Polling and what it is we do have in the way of opportunities for investment in this space, and then make the decision yourself as to whether or not we're a good fit. So I hope you've had a uh educational 20 or 25 minutes whatever it's been here this morning and uh and that you have a great week please join us next week for another episode of multifamily real estate investing presented by mara poland <music>